0: Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories, making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicky St. Clair.
1: And welcome everybody, welcome, welcome. If you've ever wished upon a harvest moon, wondered what creates the green flash at sunset, or looked up at the sky and sang, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, you're not alone. Andrew Fizekas, a.k.a. the Night Sky Guy, turned his passion for gazing at the constellation into an awesome, awesome lifelong career. Today he discusses his new book, brought to us by National Geographic, Backyard Guide to the Night Sky. We'll also hear how Andrew's working with National uh, Geographic to bring the stars closer to home with augmented reality. And that is really cool stuff. We'll end today's show with returning guest psychotherapist and sexologist, Dr. Tammy Nelson. Uh, Dr. Nelson's new book is When You're the One Who Cheats. According to studies, 50% of women admit to having cheated on their spouses at some time during their marriage. She interviewed dozens of self-professed cheaters to find out why they have affairs, men and women, and says they're often just as confused about the affair as those around them. I'm going to reserve judgment on that one. (laughs) I find that hard to believe. But uh, first, if you feel your life is stuck on Groundhog Day, same routine, same job, same conversations, Austin Kleon is back with a new addition to his series on creativity. He's the New York Times bestselling author to Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, and the Steal Like an Artist Journal, a notebook for creative kleptomaniacs. He's been featured on NPR, PBS NewsHour, and many other platforms, including, of course, our show, several times. And uh, he speaks about creativity in the digital age uh, for organizations such as Pixar, Google, TEDx. The Atlantic describes him as one of the most interesting people on the Internet, and I would agree with them. I'm a huge fan of Austin's work, and uh, we sat down last week to chat. Having talked with him, I think, four times now, I have to tell you, he's still uh, so modest in spite of the huge success he's had with his work. Ask him what he does, and he says quite simply, "'I'm a writer who draws. I make art with words and books with pictures.'" And this book, he says, is the book he himself needed to read. It's called Keep Going, 10 Ways to Stay Creative in Good Times and Bad. Here's my conversation with Austin Kleon. So, Austin, um, I, I'm so pleased you've come out with another book. I've been waiting for you to come out with the next book, and this is called Keep Going, 10 Ways to Stay Creative in Good Times and and in bad. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, your, your work is full of words, illustration, ideas, poetry, quotes. Why do you think it appeals to so many people? Because I've talked to so many people from different backgrounds, and they, they love it.
2: Well,
3: I think two things. I think one, you know, it's like Alice in Wonderland said, What's the point with that, of a book without any pictures in it? <laughs> <laughs> I think that you know I love the fact that I make adults uh, books for adults with pictures in them. That's kind of like or all ages because if you say adult, it makes it sound smutty. But um, you know my books are for all ages and they have pictures in them and they're very visual and I think they're 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 like collages. You know they they really they can be flipped through and you can kind of like. Pick them up at any point. So I think the format appeals to people, but I also think that I'm a person that's sort of um, I'm kind of a mongrel. Like I'm a I'm a mongrel of like like artist and writer, and so I'm very interested in lots of different like disciplines and how they talk to each other. So I think in my work I'm always interested in you know what filmmakers have to say to novelists or what sculptors have to say to poets, and so I think that kind of gives my work a kind of Uh, 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 I have my fingers in a lot of different areas. And I think I I can pull things together for people, you know, no matter what their discipline is. So I think that's how it works.
1: Yes, because even the different disciplines, people do face many of the same challenges there. And I read that you wrote this book because you were feeling a little challenged yourself, and you needed to read it. So tell us what was going on in your life and how you were feeling
3: well I you know um, i I really a couple of years ago, you know it'd been a couple of years since I'd written a book and i I was just feeling the plain old burnout basically I, I the world just seemed too crazy, and writing seemed too hard, and I just thought, what's the point of books and in a in a world that's gone this way and and I just kind of lost my path and um, and so I did what. I think you have to do sometimes, which is I I went away so I could come back. So I spent a lot of time kind of not working. I I spent a lot of time writing in my diary, spent a lot of time taking walks, and spent a lot of time with my kids and um, just playing with them. And and eventually I kind of cobbled together uh, by studying, you know, the books of other writers and and studying the words of other artists. I, I kind of cobbled together my own personal Ten Commandments to, to keep me back on track. And and after I had assembled it, I thought, well, you know, this is this is really the next book. I want to put this out in the world because I felt like it could help, you know, my friends and my readers who seem to be facing a lot of the same challenges that I was. So it's a very personal book for me. It's, it's a book that I really had to write because I wanted to read it.
1: Yes, and I think that often when... You do work that you love. Other people find it hard to um, acknowledge that you you can get to that point of burnout. Because I've been there myself, and people have said, you have the dream job.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just because
3: it's like a dream job doesn't mean that it's not still the job, you know? And I'm very interested in how many artists have a lot of trouble when they have a big success. Like, success can knock you off your game just as much as failure can in some ways because, you know, when you fail everyone kind of leaves you alone you know, no one's really watching you you can kind of go away and explore and and do your own thing but, you know, when you have a big success then all of a sudden people have expectations of you, you know so it's very interesting in our careers how like, you know, no matter what point you're at it's, it's always kind of hard to keep going and I think that you know, whether you're starting out or starting over or you're burned out or you're super successful, that, that question never goes away. What's next? How do you keep going? How do I keep doing this? And mm. So I think it's good to have a little bit of guidance and and your own principles to kind of keep you uh, to correct things when things get out of hand.
1: Absolutely. And um, that's a good segue into this question because there's been a lot of discussion lately around Um, Can you separate a man from his art? And can you separate the art from the man? And I'm talking, of course, of some of the scandals that have come out, celebrity scandals, and people love their work and yet find the behavior of the person reprehensible. There's a great quote in the book uh, that you share by Ben Shahn. He says, however glorious the history of art, the history of artists is quite another matter. And you say... Art is for life, not the other way around. So, would you share your viewpoint on that?
3: Yeah, this is uh, this is tricky, uncomfortable territory for a lot of people right now. Um, but if um, you know, I, I personally believe that art is supposed to make life better. And when you make art, the hope is that you give people affirmation that you that great art makes us glad to be alive. It makes us, you know, kind of seize our days, and it gives us a new way of looking at the world. Um, But I also think that, you know, that's true of the making of art, too, that making art should make your life better, and it should make the lives of the people around you. It should at least not do any harm. Mm. I think that there are a lot of people celebrated in our culture right now that making their art is is really taking a toll on on the people around them. And the fact that they've made great art allows them to get away with things. And so I think there's, um, you, you know, as Scott Fitzgerald, he said that the, the key to, like, having a mature mind was being able to keep two spirits. Uh, two opposing thoughts in your head at the same time and not go crazy and it it is it is very true that we have to acknowledge that people who are not beautiful people uh, inside can make things that are beautiful or useful or helpful to us um and that is just a fact that you know you look through the, the centuries of art history that has been the case you know not so great human beings have made sublime or wonderful art And so part of how we process that knowledge is is part of our own work. And it's our work as artists and our work as fans. And we have to kind of figure out who we want to celebrate and how and what we want to do with our own lives.
1: Right. I love this uh, because this is kind of how I set up my life and my work. You say creativity has seasons. So what does that mean for you?
3: For me, that, that means that creativity is not on any kind of, like, industrial time cycle. Like, it's not um, you know, you can't necessarily be on a production line type of schedule uh, with a lot of creative work. We, we all have kind of internal seasons, and um, sometimes it seems like, you know, people look at us and it seems like winter, like that we're not doing anything, but actually inside of us, there's There are things that are growing and percolating, and and ideas are sort of forming, and I think it's really important for an artist to know, or a creative person, or anyone who does any kind of work, to understand that there are seasons in the work, and that there's a time and a place for all kinds of different work. So for example, right now, I'm in the promotional season of doing a book, like the book's done. And now I'm out on the road, and I'm selling it, and I'm talking about it. And I know that this is a particular season, it's sort of like the harvest is in, and now I've taken the goods to the farmer's market, you know, right,
1: right. Um, So when when as creatives, when we um, turn our passion into a money-making practice we can face a lot of different challenges and uh one of them of course is what idealists would call selling out you know we sell out commercially uh, to make money and um you give you quite rightly say that money is not the only measurement that can corrupt the creative practice would you elaborate on that for us
3: well so we all have the ability now to kind of share whatever we want of our creative work at any time i mean and and one of the things that happens on a lot of these social media platforms that we share on is that we then have kind of like quantitative metrics on what the thing has done uh, out in the world so you know you post uh, uh... one of your art pieces on instagram and immediately you can see how many likes it gets but what do likes really tell us about the work we're making? I mean, you know, Picasso didn't have a like button underneath his painting. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, a like is simply that you've... It, a lot of times when people click the like button, it just means that you fired some sort of dopamine hit in their brain. Yes. You know, it doesn't yeah. even necessarily mean that they will think about that image next week or, or a month from now. And so we have to be careful that these metrics that, we, that you're kind of forced to use um, the minute you interact with these platforms. We have to be careful about the metrics and, and using that to measure our work um, because we all kind of know the experience of having something really close to us and sharing it, and it's almost like crickets chirp. And then, you know, sometimes we'll share something that we don't feel particularly close to. And that seems to be the thing that everyone loves.
1: Mm. And you write about that in the book. And you say sometimes you think people are going to rave about something and, and you get those crickets, right? And it's it's a surprise. And I've kind of found the same thing. Sometimes I think uh, things that will really resonate may not. And other things that maybe I don't resonate with just go off like fire.
3: Yeah, I mean, and it's... Illuminates something about the process of creative work, which is the audience, the person on the other end, is really half of the equation. So when I write a book, it's great, it's there, it's a book, it's there for you to read, but what you bring to the book is just as important as what I did with it, because if you're not ready... Uh, for this book, if you're not ready to kind of accept what's in it, in a sense, or you can't handle it, then it's not going to be a good reading experience, you know. And mm. so that happens in a lot of different kinds of work, the the audience or the reader, or whoever's on the other end, they have a big part to play in the work.
1: And like many creatives, you've had to learn to uh, say no and mean no. Um, tell us how you've embraced that.
3: Well, I'm a, I'm a Midwestern, you know, I grew up in, a, in the middle of a cornfield. I come from <laughs> nice, you know, I come from nice, helpful people. And, um, and I always want to say yes to people because I want them to like me. Um, but part of, you know, getting my work done now because I'm a, I'm a guy who's, you know, I've, I have a pretty decent-sized audience, and I, but I also have like a young family and I'm trying to do my thing is I have to say no to a lot of people. And I have to kind of disappoint a lot of people uh, in what they want from me. And that's part of the work. Part of my work is not just doing the work, but it's protecting the time to do the work. So we all have to say no uh, to things. And that's just part of our job.
1: Mm. You write that your kids uh, are an inspiration to you. Everything you do is for your kids. Um, How have you learned to rejuvenate yourself so that you can be present for your work and for your family. You you share a lot of these tips in the book, but w- share something that's really maybe your go-to number one.
3: Well, I, I love including my kids as much as I can in my workplace. And I know that's hard for a lot of people, but, um, you know, my job is to draw pictures and to write stories, kind of. And kids love that, so I'll bring my kids in the studio with me uh, and and they will play alongside me. Um, But I think in some ways, as far as being present and available, I just think um, just pulling yourself out, because, you know, when you have your phone with you all the time, you know, you've got a new book out or something's going on at work or whatever, it's very easy to be on your phone and to be distracted from work all the time and to not be present for your family, so One of the things I use a lot is airplane mode on my phone. Uh, My family and I, we also go for long walks together. Um, I think walking is kind of this magical thing that, like, connects you with your environment. Mm, Me too. Kind of frees you up. Um, And so those are the kinds of things. Just trying to, like, really engage with your everyday surroundings. Um, instead of constantly being distracted by the screens is is probably the most important thing I'd say these days.
1: Right. Well, I know we have to let you go, Austin. Um, What's the final quick thought you'd like to leave our listeners with today?
3: I would like to tell you that if if you're thinking about giving up, you're not the only one. It's rough out there. Uh, The world's always been crazy, and art's always been hard, work's always been hard, and you just can't give up. Just keep going. Uh, Finish today and be done with it. And take tomorrow and try to do with it what you can.
1: And that was Austin Cleon. You can find out much more about Austin and his work at AustinCleon.com. His book again, Keep Going 10 Ways to Stay Creative in Good Times and Bad. Coming up next, National Geographic Backyard Guide to the Night Sky. And you'll hear from the night sky guy himself. Andrew Fazekas. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair.
4: Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800 457 6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org.
0: Let's see if I... I guess that... (sighs) This just isn't working.
5: Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicky St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicky partners with people just like you at the exact level you need, whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClaire.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClaire.com. Oh, yeah,
0: that could work.
5: You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why Savebythescan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council.
0: Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Relationships. They can be as easy or as difficult as we make them. Psychologists and relationship experts Dr. James Crichton and Dr. Ronald Frederick join us to help smooth the way with insights from their new books, Loving Through Your Differences and Loving Like You Mean It. Catch us live Mondays at noon Pacific and again Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at ConversationsLive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. Advertise. Learn more at ConversationsLive.net. you found us. Maybe you've been guided to listen. Alternative Talk 1150.
1: And welcome back, everyone. Well, we're going to hear from the Night Sky Guy in just a moment. I do want to let you know that Austin Cleon, who uh, we just heard from, is coming up to the Northwest uh, Thursday, April 11th. He'll be at Powell's City of Books in Portland, Oregon. And he'll be up here in Seattle uh, doing the live taping uh, of his interview on Friday, April 12th at University Temple United Methodist Church. You can ping me on info at if you didn't catch that. Or it's probably on his website. All right, so coming up now, we're talking with Andrew Fazekas, a.k.a. the Night Sky Guy. He has a passion for night skies that is absolutely contagious. His new book with National Geographic is A Backyard Guide to the Night Sky. It is full of really fascinating information, fun facts, and, of course, fabulous pictures uh, that you'd expect from National Geographic. The book takes an expert but easygoing approach. It's suitable for all ages and would-be astronomers at all levels. Andrew Fazekas is a science writer, speaker, broadcaster, and he shares his passion for the wonders of the universe in all media. He writes the popular online column Starstruck for National Geographic, and he's the author of the, Star Trek, uh, of the book Star Trek, The Official Guide to Our Universe. He's a syndicated correspondent for TV and radio networks and the communications manager for Astronomers Without Borders. He's also the co-creator of the world's first open air or first open air augmented reality planetarium experience, which is up in Canada. And uh, he and his team are partnering with National Geographic to expand this concept globally. It's very exciting. Here's our conversation, Andrew Fazekas, and he says he's never met a night sky he didn't like you are also known Andrew as the night sky guy I understand you've been doing this for a long time for like 40 years or so so you began this as a a fascination as a kid what was it that drew you to the night sky
2: well you know um, it's it's seared in my brain. The earliest memories are really sitting in my father's lap and 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 looking through his department store telescope. While we lived in downtown Montreal, Canada, in an apartment building, we would go to the rooftop. And this is a really young age in the 70s. Uh, and you know, even though there was a lot of light pollution around, we were in the middle of the city. Uh, I was able to see through that telescope wonders that really. Has stayed with me for the entire life. I was looking at the craters of the moon, looking at the moons of Jupiter, seeing the rings of Saturn. These are 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 you know really fond memories for me, and it it it, it sparked a lifelong journey in exploring the night sky and be, and sharing my passion with others. I I just get I it, it it just tickles me pink just to to be able to inspire people uh, about the night sky, and uh, it's very infectious, and uh, it's something that I'm very fortunate to have now uh, transformed my hobby into a, a profession of being able to, uh, as a professional astronomy communicator,
4: right, right.
2: get people exploring the cosmos.
1: Often, you know, when we take our passion, this was going to be one of my questions, Andrew, so we'll just jump straight into that here. But um, often when we take our passion and it becomes our job, um, it it becomes less of a passion for us. And I was going to ask you what still gives you goosebumps and it sounds as though everything (laughs) does to do with this.
2: Well, for me, it's, uh, a lot of it is being having the opportunity to engage with some of the frontline uh, researchers and discoverers. Um, part of my job is really to translate all that science gobbledygook that really is very difficult to understand for lay people and and sort of distill it into easy to understand terms and something that also engages people and and so I what gives me goosebumps is being able to um, to see uh, a professional astronomer at work uh, uh, getting back. Uh, data of, say, a planet that's orbiting a star 500 light-years away, and that data that he's got, nobody's seen. Those images nobody in the world has seen before, no human eye. And it holds secrets of of perhaps that this is a habitable planet that's so far distant. Could there be life on it? And to be have that ability to really... Explore that with uh, with a professional astronomer is amazing, and then be able to convey that. It is, my excitement is very childlike when it comes to the cosmos, and um, and this is. This is the and being able to just go out to the night sky, believe it or not, Vicky, I love just spending time going out to the night sky. And what I get a kick out of is sharing that with my children as well. Yeah. I have two daughters, 9 and 11, and, uh, you know, I love sitting out in the backyard on a blanket with them and pointing out things in the sky and sharing that those stories with them. and uh, And these are the things that still... You know, after so many years, there's never enough that I can get out of it.
1: Right. Well, you also say it's the cheapest hobby because you can just zip out into the back garden and sit there on a blanket. And I certainly remember as a kid, I thought my dad was so clever because he he could point out certain aspects of the sky. So I'm sure your kids appreciate it, too.
2: Um, what- oh my goodness, and and you know, Vicki, now, some of the things with the technology, like for instance, satellite watching is a big thing, and if you want to be a really big hit as a parent with a kid, is if you can determine what satellite and when it magically appears and glides over your overhead sky, it's like magic, you know that? Of course it's not magic, you have to, there's uh, apps for this where you can actually go online and it'll tell you when uh, the International Space Station comes around and 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 does a flyover but boy that looks like magic you want to be the hit of a barbecue party in the summer you can do that hey guys look over there
1: one two three there you go there's the space station coming by and it's like wow and you can
2: still get that wow factor today like ever like never before
1: right absolutely Um, You know, one of the projects that I thought sounded really interesting that you work on, you're also co-creator of the world's first open air augmented reality planetarium experience. And that is going to be at some point taken globally. It's in Canada right now. Tell us a little bit about that and then we'll dive into some of the facts from the book.
2: Well, yeah, I'm very excited about this project. Um, Yes, it's something that's now based in Quebec, Canada. We are running a pilot project where we're testing out um basically augmented reality glasses what that is is that it's uh using glasses and and smartphones we're able to uh, paint a virtual picture of uh, a digital picture of the sky onto the real sky in front of a viewer and what is, so what the audience wearing headsets can actually see through the headsets the real sky and uh, on top of that sky is painted a digital version of it, so that would mean that you would actually see the mythological characters, the ancient mythological characters, with the uh, connected with the, the the lines that form the constellations, and even um, the the names of the stars and planets. All of that are painted on top of the real sky, and it moves dynamically as you move your head. New pictures pop up layered uh, wow. on top of the real sky. So this is a very new concept it's very exciting because it's a new way to engage people at the night sky and get them all excited about uh, exploring the cosmos like never before. And we're hoping that uh, within the next year tour, we'll be able to take this uh, globally and have outdoor uh, planetariums like that in, in national and state parks and cruise lines and uh, lodges and different place planetariums to a lot of different locations.
1: Fascinating. So we've just hit spring and uh, in the book you have a seasonal calendar in there and you say that spring is is galaxy hunting season. What does that mean?
2: Well, is really interesting because if you look at the sky typically across the, in the everywhere in the northern hemisphere wherever you are you look at the night evening sky and what you may notice after coming off of uh, of the winter sky that there's a sparsity of, of really truly bright stars there's there more of the star, there's more blank dark space in the in 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 the spring sky and that's because our view from our vantage point here on earth we have a window and during the springtime of where we don't have the... Stars that are nearby blocking the view from the entire universe outside of the Milky Way galaxy. So just to set the scene, Vicky, we are on a planet, third planet around the sun, that our sun is one of over a hundred billion other suns that make up what we call the Milky Way galaxy, this island of stars of over a hundred billion stars in a pinwheel shaped uh, configuration. And we are just one galaxy of Billions of others in the universe. And what happens is that um, in the summertime and in the wintertime, we see a lot of the stars that are within our Milky Way galaxy in the, in our, in the sky. but uh, And they're so bright, and there's so many of them, they're blocking the view of everything else outside of our galaxy. So during the springtime, it's a really special time, because and fall as well, uh, these two time seasons are where we have a window here, of in the evening time to see beyond the milky way and this is where we're looking at distances of to hundreds of millions of light years distant and seeing other galaxies like our Milky Way that are visible and um, it's incredible to think that through with binoculars and backyard telescopes we can travel to halfway across the entire universe billions of light years away uh, just from the back from our backyard
1: yeah it's incredible Um, I read that not all stars twinkle why do some twinkle and some don't twinkle
2: Right, the twinkling effect. Well, that's really uh, due to uh, the Earth's atmosphere. It's not the, uh, necessarily the light. Now, I'll have a caveat to the little asterisk, actually, to okay. that statement. But first, let me say that generally... T- Stars don't twinkle. When you see them shimmering like that in the sky, that's usually an effect of something nearby, uh, uh, something of pollution or particulate matter in the atmosphere that is making it shimmer. Um, What you may notice is that stars that are high overhead don't twinkle uh, as the ones that are near the horizon. That's because the starlight has to travel through a thick column of, of of Earth's atmosphere when you're looking to something near the horizon. And so you, you can think of it very much like looking, like if you were next to a pool, a swimming, backyard swimming pool, and you threw a penny into the swimming pool, and you look at the penny at the bottom of the pool, you're not going to see it very clearly, are you? It's going right. to be kind of blurry and right. wavy. That's the same idea of looking at stars through Earth's atmosphere. Um, and you, everything is slightly blurred, and the starlight, stars are so far away that the beam of light is very, very thin, needle thin, and it t- And as that little needle-thin starlight penetrates Earth's atmosphere, it gets scattered by the molecules of the atmosphere, by dust in in the atmosphere. And that's what makes it shimmer and sparkle and twinkle. Now... There, with that said, Vicki, there are actually stars out there that do change in light, in the brightness of light. They're called variable stars. That's one of the fun things to, that I explore in my book, is that you can actually choose certain stars that actually change their uh, their brightness intrinsically, meaning they actually wink out. There's one star called the demon star that's visible in, in, in the autumn skies, that one day you can clearly see it with the naked eye from, from the city, even under a light-polluted city, and then two, three days later, it just disappears. Mm-hmm. And then a day later, it comes back again. <laughs> it's incredible. And that's really, these are, these are variable stars that are, that uh, the engine inside of them are kind of, haltering and they, they sputter and that's what you're seeing happen the effect is that they they dim and then they brighten again so there's all kinds of cool stuff like that in the sky
1: yeah fascinating what why do we get a green flash we've only got a minute left here andrew but i've seen one green flash in my lifetime and i've seen hundreds of sunsets uh, why do we get that green flash
2: well, you know, the green flash is, is, a, is a very rare phenomenon that uh, that occurs when the the sun is very near the horizon, and again, we're looking through a very thick portion of the atmosphere, and it can only happen during uh, sunsets. And it's, a, it's an atmospheric effect of the sunlight uh, going through and refracting through the atmosphere of the Earth. And um, it's the same kind of uh, physics that goes on as when you see the sunlight turning, um, turning uh, orange and, and, and red during sunsets. So um, they're usually seen on, along coastlines uh over the ocean right. um and they're very very uh, uh, bright i mean it's sort of like a the light of the sun going through kind of like a prism and being kind of separated out into different parts colors and that green pop, color is really the one that pops out and uh, in nature that green color and when it comes to starlight is very very rare and uh, and That's why this kind of really is a special thing that only here on Earth can we ever experience kind of one of these green flashes from sunsets.
1: So absolutely fascinating. The book is awesome, really awesome. Your excitement comes through on every single page um, and it's just full of really great information. Um, I could ask you 100 more questions, but we're out of time. So a final thought you'd like to leave our listeners with today, Andrew.
2: Well, I, I'm hoping that I, I've, if people feel free to contact me about questions about telescopes and stargazing, how to get started, how to deal, how to get your kids involved, uh, I'd love to help anyone out there. My website is thenightskyguy.com. I've got links to my book, even out, uh, uh, you know, uh, snapshots from the book, and I've got. Uh, um, Charts about what's happening with the night sky on my uh, social media feeds, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. I invite people to follow me on all my all my channels and uh, explore the night sky with me.
1: Andrew Fazekas, thank you so much for being with us.
2: My pleasure. And I wish you and all your listeners clear skies.
1: And uh, you can find out more about Andrew again at thenightsky.com. And you can find out more about National Geographic Starstruck initiative celebrating the past, present and future of space exploration and the upcoming 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing at their website. You can just type National Geographic Starstruck into your browser and and it will pop straight up. If you have a pen handy, you can uh, write down nationalgeographic.com forward slash science forward slash starstruck. And coming up next, sexologist and psychotherapist Dr. Tammy Nelson highlights common misconceptions around affairs in her new book, When You're the One Who Cheats. Please stay with us. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. We'll be right back.
4: I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George, spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Anti-Icky Poo, the product that gets the stink out, we cover the world of animals. This week, April 14th, it's Harmonic Energy Shifting Sunday with Jude and Paul Potton from the Whispering Dragon Center in the studio. They'll have their acutonic forks and chimes, Tibetan bowls and bells, poo, Dig and rattle ready to do free remotes for you and your animal friends. So plan to join us and call in on Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative. Talk, AM 1150. Do something different
3: with your spare time. Give baby animals at PAWS a fresh start. With the assistance of caring volunteers, PAWS helps hundreds of orphaned and sick kittens and puppies each year. Join us and save lives. Become a PAWS foster care volunteer. For more information, visit PAWS.org or 425-787-2500. PAWS.org or 425 787 two five zero zero
5: sensory sensitivity repetitious behavior lack of eye contact you can see signs of autism in children as young as 18 months learn the signs at autismspeaksorg speaks.org signs brought to you by autism speaks and the ad council
0: Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Relationships. They can be as easy or as difficult as we make them. Psychologists and relationship experts Dr. James Crichton and Dr. Ronald Frederick join us to help smooth the way with insights from their new books, Loving Through Your Differences and Loving Like You Mean It. Catch us live Mondays at noon Pacific and again Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at ConversationsLive.net.
5: Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Listeners trust the show and advertisers love the audience. Learn more at ConversationsLive.net.
0: Talk radio for the heart and soul. Alternative Talk 1150.
1: And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Well, we're certainly changing up our topics today. Joining me now, Dr. Tammy Nelson joins us for When You're the One Who Cheats. It's a new book. Uh, she is a board-certified sexologist and certified uh, sex therapist, a certified Imago relationship therapist. She's an international speaker and licensed psychotherapist in private practice, working with couples and individuals. Uh, we talked with her last book. Uh, we talked with her last time about her book "New Monogamy," and today we're talking about her latest, "When You're the One Who Cheats: Ten Things You Need to Know." Dr. Tammy Nelson, welcome.
4: Oh, thank you so much! Thank you for having me.
1: My pleasure. Um, I want to just uh, jump straight in here because we don't have a great deal of time. And you say uh, you hope this book will serve as a constructive educational resource for people looking to make sense of their extramarital behavior and how to move forward. And and to get this information, I mean, obviously you you practice this on a daily basis in your in your practice with your uh, clients. But you also interviewed people specifically for the book. So tell us a little bit about that.
4: Yeah, So I was able to interview people on Ashley Madison, which is a website for people who are specifically seeking out affairs. And there is like 60 million people on this website worldwide. And so there's a lot of cheating going on, which is no surprise to your listeners, I'm sure. But what was interesting about that is that there are as many men as there are women that sign up for memberships on the website. So I got to interview people who are currently having affairs, who are either struggling with the idea of being honest, or who are cheating to stay in their marriage. And I just found it all very fascinating. Right.
1: And so, um, you know, there's been a lot of controversy around that that website you just mentioned, so I don't really want to focus on that for the purposes of our sure. conversation. Um, but you say that cheaters are often just as confused as the spouse they cheat on. Really? Or is that just another excuse?
4: <laughs> well, there's certainly a lot of excuses. I think that people cheat for two reasons or two categories of reasons. One is that they cheat to get out of their marriage. And so I call those a can opener affair. You know, sometimes people cheat because they want their partner to break up with them. Or it's kind of passive aggressive way of saying I want out but I'm too chicken to get out. And that's a kinda of, it's kind of a way of saying I want my partner to break up with me or I want to have this invisible divorce where I have this parallel relationship going on and they don't want to face up to the truth of what's happening in their relationship. And then there's this whole other category of affair where people are doing it, not because they want to find someone else, but because they almost want to be someone else. And in that case, it really has nothing to do with their marriage. And, you know, if you've ever been cheated on, that doesn't really feel good to hear me say that. And I know because I've been in that situation, but the the reality is is that people really do look to an outside relationship many times to become a different part of themselves. Mm. And and I don't think anyone really would argue with that unless unless they're being cheated on and they're like, well, I don't really care. <laughs> I don't care who you tried to become.
1: Right, right. You say in a typical monogamous marriage, the very second you cross that line into cheating behavior, you've ended the marriage.
4: Yeah, because I think monogamy has become synonymous with marriage. And so we know that when we get married, there is an implicit and an explicit assumption that you're not going to cheat. So the minute you cheat, you know that you're going over a line that you promise never to cross. So. It's not like affairs happen by accident. No one cheats and says, oh, my God, I didn't know how that happened.
1: <laughs> but and, but they, they do say, oh, it
4: just happened. <laughs> yeah, that's a lie. That's like one of the number one lies about affairs. I don't know how that happened. If you wake up the next morning and you don't know how that happened, you either have a drinking problem and you need to get right. some treatment or you were roofied and you need to get some legal help. So. Other than that, it doesn't just happen. People plan it. It it takes some planning. It takes some pre consideration, and so affairs don't just happen. Right. There is an opening that you are you're working it out first for a while.
1: You say um, this this kind of. Surprise me. Okay, so I was reading through the book and reading some of the comments that people made when they were talking with you about affairs, and one woman in particular got very offended by the word cheater. She, yes, she's cheating on her husband, but she said cheaters are bad people. I'm not a bad person, and yet she's having this illicit affair. I didn't see a lot in the book, um, and maybe, uh, maybe I miss this, Tammy, so address it, you know, if it was there. Um, I didn't see a lot of cheaters saying things like, I betrayed my partner, I deceived my partner. It was mostly about them and what they wanted from this cheating affair.
4: Yeah, and I think that there is a dilemma of integrity around affairs, for sure. I don't. I didn't sense that people were, you know, waking up in the morning going, oh, I really want to hurt my partner. I think it definitely is about their own needs. And then they struggle with... You know, what are they loyal to? So people are normally loyal to their own integrity, like their own belief about what they need, much more so than they are about what the other person needs. But I find that people are primarily committed to the agreement that they make between two people. And so what, what changes in their mind is the agreement. Not necessarily that they're not committed to the other person, but they're committing to an agreement that in their mind somehow has shifted. So in other words, well, you stopped having sex with me, so I'm cha- I, I feel like the agreement has changed. Mm-hmm. Or I stopped loving you, so I feel like the agreement has changed. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there's this justification because the agreement is no longer what they committed to.
1: right. Right. And I I get that totally, but it would help if we communicated before
4: we got to that
1: point, right?
4: (laughs) (laughs) And that's that's an imperative too. And I think that there's a confusion in people who cheat that they justify, I don't want to hurt my partner. And so if I tell them, then not only will I not be able to do it, but I will somehow be causing them some kind of pain that I'll avoid if I don't tell them. And that's, a dilemma like where are we in our whole culture around telling the truth like what does integrity really mean yeah. are we are we protecting people by lying or you know i i really wrote this book cuz i was obsessed with this idea of truth like what does it mean to tell yourself the truth or to tell your cheating partner the truth or the your marital partner the truth like i'm really intrigued by this idea of how people process this idea of telling the truth. Mm. And what does that mean? Right, I find it interesting.
1: Right, and you said in the book, uh, which I found interesting too, and I, I've seen this with friends who've, uh, you know, had been cheated on and and cheated themselves, but they, you say, they need, cheaters need to get out of denial. They often build a case for why they're cheating. Uh, they build up resentment and use that as ammunition against their, their spouse, their partner.
4: Yeah, and what I'm, what I'm really hoping to say in the book is, look, don't blame anybody for your affair. The first thing people do is start blaming their partner or right. blaming their marriage. You know, this is why I did it. Even when they apologize, they say, well, I did it because I wasn't happy in the marriage, or I did it because I wasn't getting enough of this or too much of that. And that uh, that I'd like to just take out of the whole narrative. You know, you didn't cheat because you weren't getting enough. You weren't. You didn't cheat because your partner didn't do this for you. You cheated because you made a choice to get your needs met from a different place. Right. So I think you have to take responsibility, first of all, for your own behavior and stop blaming anybody else. It's not your therapist's fault or your mother's fault. I'm a mother, so mm-hmm. i just throw that in. And <laughs> it's certainly not your wife or your husband's fault. Right. That you can't be who you want to be in the marriage.
1: Right, we've only got a couple of minutes uh, here left, um, and I want to get this in because you say the number one question the partner who's been betrayed will ask is why. Does any answer ever satisfy that question?
4: Well, I think it's really difficult because the the first thing that the cheater will say is, "I did this because of something missing in you." And so I did this because something's missing in the marriage, which implies there's something missing in you. Right. And so that doesn't really answer the question of why. You know, why the first thing that should come out of the cheater's mouth is I was missing something in myself. And I was searching for this in me. Um, not because I was bored or I was lonely or I needed better sex or the why question is never about. Um, the other things around you that are wrong in your life. It's always a deeper question um, that demands a little bit more insight. And if you can't figure that out, you should go to therapy and figure it out. Because it really is like an existential crisis at that point.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think the thing is that at the end of the day, that new person is going to become that old person someday.
4: (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, the, the... Affair partner can never live up to the affair partner.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So uh, no listeners can find out much more about you at drtamynelson.com. A quick final thought you'd like to leave our listeners with, Tammy.
4: Yeah, I think, you know, we all at certain points of our lives want more. We want more for ourselves. We want more out of our lives. And so I don't think cheaters in general are, are bad people necessarily. I think that... Um, we all have to look at what it means to live in integrity, and that means integrating all the parts of ourselves. We're so compartmentalized in our culture. We hide so many parts of us that I think we're all struggling with this idea of what it means to live in an open, truthful, honest relationship. And mm. I think that's a struggle.
1: Yeah, wise words. Dr. Tammy Nelson, thank you for being with us again. Appreciate it.
4: Oh, love being with you.
1: Thanks, Vicki. And the book again is called "When You're the One Who Cheats: Ten Things You Need to Know." So, I think whether you're being cheated on or if you're cheating, this is uh, you might find some good tips in here. And uh, I'm going to leave you with uh, Sir Walter Scott's uh, <laughs> words here because I love this phrase: "Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive." And that brings us to the end of today's show. You can find me at conversationslive.net. You can uh, reach me by phone at 800-495-7617. You can find us on Twitter at Vicky St. Clair and Facebook at Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair. Until next week, live well, live strong.
0: Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and inflame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicky's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live live.net That's conversationslive.net today